I'm Paul Heron, and this is episode 12 of the Ani Isnin podcast. A few years ago, a book called Hell Hath No Fury, Women's Letters from the End, was published, which contains some of the most venomous breakup letters in literary history. Among them is Ani Isnin's 1945 breakup letter to C.L. Lanny Baldwin, in which she declared, My poor Lanny, how blind you are. I have no time for dead relationships. The day I discovered your deadness, I knew you would never enter my world, which you wanted so much. And then she added the zinger, Going out with you was like going out with a priest. Who is Lanny Baldwin, and what would prompt such a letter? Until recently, we only had Neen's side of the story. But now, after a remarkable discovery, we have both. By the end of 1944, Annie Eastdean had been in New York for five years. Years of frustration and the feeling of being uprooted from her beloved Paris and thrust into a cold, soulless world in which she struggled to create, to live freely, and to find the man who could complete her, as she put it, to save her from her barren marriage to banker Hugh Guiler. She had recently ended her affair with Henry Miller and her decade-long relationship with Peruvian lover Gonzalo More, her partner at Gemmore Press, was limping towards its end. She was ripe for a new relationship, hungry for relief, when along came a young married businessman who wrote poetry on the side, Charles Lansing Baldwin, better known as Lanny. Neen writes that she had battled the depths of depression by visiting her doctor and her analyst. But then, as she writes in Mirages, Lanny Baldwin, the southern poet whose book of poems we are printing, came to the press to breathe. I like his humor and softness. He took us to lunch. One afternoon he was looking over his pages, and I saw his blonde, sensitive hands and felt their nudity and sensuality. He was at first merely a handsome man, well-groomed, not comfortable in business, who had a home in Mount Kisco, a wife and two children. Then he became the southern gentleman poet, who was gallant and shy with me, became the man whose rich, soft voice stirred me, the homme fatale for me, the soft, feminine, rather weak man. As I grew healthier, lighter, freer, I began to desire him, to dream of kissing him. We went out together last night, a French restaurant, red wine, a long talk. He wanted me to read his last poems at the hotel. At first I said I'd wait in a taxi, but he urged me upstairs. I read the poems. It was late. When I stood to leave, he kissed me so delicately and so strongly, so sensually. I left. In a taxi, I threw my head back, drugged. Neen continues in her diary. I wrote out of the drunkenness caused by Lanny's kiss. Then yesterday he came to my place. I expected pleasure but I found a man afraid. He had been dreaming of me, obsessively, but he could not bear the deception, the secret, the partial relationship. He was afraid I would hurt him. We kissed. 
He held me so close on the couch I felt his desire against my body. But he fought his desire. It was all so sensual, so soft, so tormented. Why do I choose so unwisely? Neen found herself in a trap, one that characterized her love life in the 1940s, an infatuation with a man who inspired her, fascinated her, a man to whom she was physically attracted, but who could not answer her needs. Neen wasn't seeking a casual love affair. She was seeking a soulmate, a lover, and fellow artist, exactly what her husband was not. In Mirages, she continues, Alone with Lanny in my apartment, and again the doubts. Do I love him or merely desire him? He is afraid. He wants an absolute love in the open. He doubts everything, himself and me. And he fears pain. The contrast is too violent between his life at Mount Kisco and me. He talks like a woman who is afraid to be possessed. Sitting back, tender, vulnerable, he arouses me painfully. And then suddenly the brakes give way, and he holds me with such a fervor that it is like a possession. He says, let me sleep. I'm broken. I want peace. So we lie side by side, and as he falls asleep, his caresses grow wilder, all but the ultimate. His passion and emotionalism now arouse me more, and I suffer now. My feelings are captured by his conflict. I know. I know. Let him sleep in my tenderness. This he cannot be saved from. If I withdraw, it does not matter. Lanny cannot kill the passion that is in him, the poetry, and the ecstasy. They are in him. They will torment him. I wish I could turn back, but it's too late. I didn't want to feel so much. After a month of this unconsummated torture, Baldwin suddenly suggests a bizarre scenario. Lanny tells me, I want to go and live in Mexico, take a house there by the sea, leave my job, and write. Will you come? I will only go if you come with me, to stay with me. I said, I can't. We haven't the means to go, he replied. But I will take care of you and Hugo. We'll work at farming, all in cooperation. I have the means. Both Hugo and you are creating worthwhile things. You ought to be freed. You have genius. I want to watch your development. I feel I have to live this life with my family. I cannot live two separate lives. I'm not sophisticated enough. But all of us together in Mexico? Well aware of how unrealistic the plan was, and seeing that Baldwin could never be free of his conventional life, Neen struggled with the idea of breaking with him, trying to rationalize such a decision by comparing him to her husband. She asked herself, Do I feel the latent passion in Lanny as I did in Hugo, who was so quiet and attenuated and bound when I first knew him? This was the fatality of the relationship. It was Geiler she was physically and psychologically incompatible with. It was Geiler's bourgeois life she detested. It was Geiler she was seeking to escape from. And yet now she found herself emotionally trapped by a younger version of him. Neen bounced back and forth between ending the relationship and surrendering to Baldwin's charms and desirability. In a rare light moment, 
she wrote him a hopeful note in which she said, You are in the music I hear. You are all around and within me. You give me the fever that is life and the quietness that is creation. What is between us is so deep and too strong to be broken by an obstacle. Baldwin wrote her a poem. While he was animated by Neen's note, Neen was devastated by the poem. It was about death, she says in the diary, and this symbolized the impossibility of the relationship, and it was the final straw. She broke it off with him in a series of letters and conversations, but nowhere does she mention the final cataclysmic letter. For years, we have only known her side of the story. But recently, a memoir by Baldwin was found among Neen editor Gunther Stuhlman's archives titled A Movement in Mauve, which reveals his interpretation of the relationship. It appears to have been written in the early 1980s, shortly after Neen's death and the publication of her erotica. Since Stuhlman was just beginning his Annie East and International Journal, the notion that Baldwin was seeking to contribute his memoir is plausible, although we have no confirmation by Stuhlman, who died in 2002. The memoir, which is 19 pages long and will be published in its entirety in Volume 13 of A Cathay in Space, is in some ways a stark contrast to Neen's version of events. Of course, Baldwin is writing from memory while Neen recorded the affair as it unfolded in her diary. Baldwin, perhaps due to the passage of more than 30 years, is not bitter in the memoir. In fact, his tone is tender rather than vindictive, respectful rather than scornful. Nowhere does he mention the break letter, but he does acknowledge that his resistance to the bohemian life and his commitment to his family and career were the main causes of Neen's anger in the end. One of the more significant claims he makes is that he did make love to Neen something she repeatedly denied in the diary. One evening he stayed too long at Neen's apartment to catch a train home. He says, It was a warm night. I undressed completely to sleep on the sofa. That's how I was used to sleeping. She realized how warm it was in the living room and called me into the bedroom, saying that I'd be more comfortable there. I wondered about this, but then I thought, Why not? but I did for an instant debate with myself whether I should put something on first. Not, of course, because I was worried about the fan blowing on me, but Ani Issa's reaction to seeing me naked for the first time. But this was absurd. Ani Issa was a woman of the world in every sense. I walked into her bedroom as I was. She looked at me and smiled. I slithered under the sheet. Ani Issa had on a silk nightgown. I could feel the gown's softness against my skin, which excited me. I moved closer to Anise. She didn't move. She was lying on her side away from me. I touched her back with my hand over the nightgown. Then she moved, turning toward me and putting my hand on her breast. You were my brother, she said softly. I loved you before as a brother, but now I love you as a man. After a short while, I removed her nightgown and tossed it on the floor, and then the inevitable happened. That was the beginning, but if it was a beginning, it was also the beginning of the end. There were two more occasions when we made love. Contrary to Neen's claim that it was Baldwin who suggested they live close to each other, he says, 
Annie East asked me to see her more often. In fact, she proposed that I move to the village to be near her. I told her that I would not leave my wife and my children, my home, my responsibilities, that I couldn't. She told me then that I would never be an artist, that I did not have the courage to walk out of one life into another as Henry Miller had done. There were more words, more insinuations. I stalked out of the apartment without saying goodbye and felt disgusted with myself afterwards. Baldwin apologized to Neen, and then he says, We made plans to meet for a talk somewhere in the East Sixties on a promenade beside the river. It was the last time our exchange was not formal. She tried to convince me once more I should give up my old life. She did most of the talking. When I finally refused again, she became enraged. I had never seen her that angry before. I'm sure that her anger was aroused more by my unwillingness to become a full-time poet than a full-time lover. Lovers were easy enough to find, but converts from the static to the creative life were another matter. Anna East once wrote of herself and fellow artists, We are children of the albatross, and our luminosity is a poison. Strange that she should have said that. Perhaps she was right, and perhaps that is why I would not allow myself to become part of her group from the beginning. The brilliant light will attract the moth, but if it cannot stand the heat, it will burn. Some moths may even be aware of this before the fact, and I may have been one of them. When I left her, I spent a long time gazing at the river. So, what was Baldwin's purpose in writing the memoir, which he apparently wanted Neen fans to read? Was it because he felt Neen's version in Diary 5 was skewed, that she was unfair to him? And why did Stuhlman never publish it? Was it because Neen's unexpurgated diaries had not yet been released, that Hugo was still alive? Or did the sting of the breakup letter still resonate in Baldwin? Perhaps he wanted the last word, that he was no priest, that he had a place alongside Neen's many lovers. These are questions that have yet to be answered. Neen's version of the affair can be found in Mirage's and Baldwin's In the Cafe in Space, Volume 13, coming out February 21st. Both can be found on iTunes, Amazon, and other vendors. This has been the On the East Neen Podcast. Thanks for listening. Until the next time.